Hey everybody, did you know that we're on Instagram? Follow us at The Refill Podcast. Also, please like, follow, subscribe, and leave a comment so that this ministry can grow and impact more people for the kingdom. All right, cue the music. Hello and welcome back to The Refill. My name is James O'Rear, and it is a privilege to be back with y'all. Brenton needed to take this week off to focus on his seminary work and asked if I would come and take over this week. Since I had such a great time last time, I had to say yes. So thank you, Brenton, and thank you, awesome Refill community, for having me back. Okay, let's get to it, shall we? We are still in the uncomfortable series, and in this episode, we are going to talk about tattoos, tobacco, rock and roll, and booze. (laughs) Yes, I'm serious. We are going to talk about a lot of things that are considered taboo and sometimes considered sin. So let's dive in. This week, uh, we're going to be focusing on what is considered Christian liberty or Christian freedom. No, not that type of liberty or freedom. So what is Christian liberty? It is where believers are free to act according to conscience in areas where scripture is silent. Here's another definition, and I think this one's a bit easier to understand. Christian liberty is when believers are free to do certain activities that are not explicitly condemned in the Bible. However, Christian liberty does not give us the green light to compromise with the word of God. In other words, it doesn't allow us to sin. I'm sure as you begin to wrap your head around that, a number of questions are popping up. Here is another example of Christian liberty found in the historic London Baptist Confession. Chapter 21 points two and three, although all of chapter one is helpful when uh, seeking out more truth about Christian liberty, but we're going to focus in on point two and three. And by the way, guys, I'm going to drop links for all of my references down below in the show notes. So make sure you use that stuff as you seek out uh, understanding the Bible more. Okay. So here's chapter 21, point two and three. And it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience, requiring implicit faith or absolute and binding obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. And it goes on in in point three to say, those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin or nurture any sinful desire pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction, and they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. This purpose is that we, having been delivered from the hands of all of our enemies, may serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Okay, now that we've established a good baseline, 
there are two things that we need to be aware of in regards to Christian liberty. The first is legalism, or it's also known as nomianism, and the second is antinomianism. So what is legalism? Check out what Matt Slick from Karm.org has to say. In Christianity, legalism is the excessive and improper use of the law. Think Ten Commandments, holiness laws, etc. This legalism can take different forms. The first is where a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation. The second is where a person keeps the law in order to maintain his salvation. The third is when Christians judge other Christians for not keeping certain codes of conduct that they think is needed to obey, but in reality is not. Let's examine each one more closely. The first kind of legalism is where the law of God is kept in order to attain salvation. This is a heresy, a completely false doctrine. We are not able to attain salvation by keeping the law. Look at Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then check out Romans 4.5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. How about Galatians 2.21? I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. It is simply not possible to keep the law enough to be saved. Therefore, to try to gain salvation through one's efforts is false teaching. It is so bad that those who hold to it cannot be Christians since it would deny salvation by grace through faith. The second kind of legalism is where a person tries to keep or maintain his salvation by keeping the law. This is also a false doctrine. We receive our salvation by faith, think Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, not by our own ability to be good because no one does good. Look at Romans 3, 10 through 12. And as Romans 3, 28, Romans 4, 5, and Galatians 2, 21 clearly show, we are justified by faith, not by faith and works. Furthermore, there are strict warnings about attempting to keep the law in order to maintain salvation. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. So if a person is seeking to be either saved by his works law or maintain his salvation by his works, law, then he is under obligation to keep all of it. And if he does not, then he's guilty before God. Furthermore, consider the words in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? In your name, perform many miracles. And then verse 23 says, And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. See, Jesus confirms them because they were appealing to their salvation based on their faith and doing good. So, it should be obvious that we do not keep our salvation by our own efforts. The last kind of legalism is where a Christian keeps certain laws and regards other Christians who do not keep his level of holiness with contempt is a frequent problem in the church. Now, we want to make it clear that all Christians are to abstain from fornication, adultery, pornography, lying, stealing, etc. Christians do have a right to judge the spirituality of other Christians in these areas where the Bible clearly speaks. But in the debatable areas, we need to be more careful. And this is where legalism is more difficult to define. Romans 14, 1 through 12 says that we are not to judge our brothers on debatable issues. One person may eat certain kinds of foods where another would not. One person might worship on a particular day where another might not. We are told to let each person be convinced in his own mind, Romans 14.5. As long as our freedom does not violate the scriptures, then everything should be okay. Check out this quote by Sinclair Ferguson. Thus, the essence of legalism is rooted not merely in our view of law as such, but in a distorted view of God as the giver of his law. That's heavy. So now we move on. What is antinomianism? Well, according to Michael Horton from monergism.org, it literally means against law. Antinomianism is the view that the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments is no longer binding on Christians. More generally, antinomianism may be seen as a characteristic of human rebellion against any external authority. In this sense, ironically, we are by nature antinomians and legalists since the fall, rejecting God's command while seeking to justify ourselves by our own criteria. The modern age is especially identified by the demand for freedom from all constraints. Be true to yourself is the modern creed. So how do we deal with things like tattoos and tobacco and secular music and alcohol? Well, let's start with tattoos. What does the Bible say about tattoos? One of the most popular verses people use in regards to tattoos is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Leviticus 19, 28 with me. And it says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Well, uh, that's case closed. No tattoos, right? Well, no. And here's why not. Because before we jump to conclusions, we need to get some context, right? I mean, Brenton does such a great job of highlighting that every single week. We need to be focused on context. So what is the context of Leviticus 19? Here is what Ra McLaughlin of Third Millennium Ministries has to say about the context of Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19.28 condemned tattoos 
in ancient Israel. This prohibition was part of the holiness code, a large section of Leviticus dedicated to laws that were given to Israel in order to distinguish the people from the nations around them. The Gentiles used tattoos. Therefore, Israel was not to use them in order to provide a visible demonstration of the fact that Israel was holy, that is, set apart as special unto God. It would seem from the context of Leviticus 19.28 that the tattoos that were specifically forbidden were those received as part of a pagan ceremony, though some have taken it as a broad prohibition against all tattoos. When Christ came, however, he tore down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. See Ephesians 2.12. Specifically, this means that the laws that were given in order to separate Israel from the rest of the nations are now counterproductive if applied in the same way that ancient Israel observed them. We must adapt our application of the law so as to follow its original purpose in light of the changes that Christ brought. Consider the example of circumcision. This stipulation distinguished Israel from the Canaanites in the promised land. But the New Testament clearly tells us that being holy unto God no longer requires us to be circumcised. See Romans 2 and Galatians 2 and 5. Circumcision was an outward symbol of dedication unto God, but that outward symbol dividing people along racial lines is no longer helpful. The people of God are from every nation. And the symbols of holiness that we now must bear are things like a pure heart. See Romans 2, 28 through 29, which was also required in the Old Testament, by the way. And baptism, which does not have any racial connotations and has replaced circumcision as a covenant sign. See Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Now, This is not to say that everything that appears in the holiness code pertains only to such separation. There are other factors at work too, such as moral ones. Israel's morality was to help distinguish her from other nations. If one is convinced that tattoos are a moral issue, then one ought to abstain from them. I, however, cannot think of any reason that a tattoo would be a moral issue. Certainly, the Bible does not state that they are moral failings or that there are moral failings involved in getting a tattoo, no matter what the context. The case would seem to be very similar to the commands that we not round off the edges of our beards or cut the hair of our temples, Leviticus 19.27. These are innocent practices in and of themselves. They were wrong in ancient Israel because of their association with pagan practices, such as divination, death rituals, cultic prostitution, etc. See Leviticus 19.26-31. If these actions do not have evil associations in their own time, there would seem to be no reason to forbid them. Okay, let's get to the nitty-gritty. Are tattoos a sin? 
no, I cannot conclude that tattoos are inherently sinful, but it really does depend on your heart and mind. Well, what about tobacco or secular music or alcohol? Well, uh, tobacco and alcohol, let, let me ask you this. Are you old enough to purchase it legally? Because if you aren't, you're breaking the law and that's a sin. Um, if you're drinking alcohol, are you getting drunk? If you are, then yes, it's sinful. Check out Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and here's a big one, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How about 1 Peter 5 verse 8? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, let's talk about tobacco or secular music. Is it causing you to sin? Because if it's causing you to sin, then you shouldn't do it. If it's putting bad thoughts in your head, then those are things that we should stay away from. But if it's not, should we feel guilty about partaking? What if you smoke an occasional cigar or you have an occasional cigarette? Should you feel guilty? Well, again, is it causing you to sin? If no, then you shouldn't feel guilty. However, if you do feel guilty, it might warrant some extra reflection in prayer with the Lord. This might be the Holy Spirit confronting you about a sin that you may not see just yet. So what about X, Y, and Z? I mean, the list can go on. Well, I believe that as believers, it is our responsibility to do our due diligence. So here are some suggestions and questions to ask yourself as you consider if something, your X, Y, and Z, is within your liberty as a Christian. Here are some helpful suggestions. Seek out truth in scripture. Seek out the insight of your pastor or a church elder. Search historical church confessions and creeds for clarity. Okay, what about questions? Well, you need to ask yourself, is this something that I can do to the glory of God? Is this something that will make a brother or sister in Christ stumble? Is this hindering my witness to an unbeliever? Is this becoming an addiction or is it replacing my joy found in God? Has it become an idol that has now taken lordship over my heart and mind before God himself? Remember Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. This of course, isn't a comprehensive list of suggestions or questions. Rather, it's a great starting point. And something worth noting, we must make sure that we aren't being evangelists of our own view of liberty and not the gospel of Jesus, and that we aren't worshiping our liberty instead of worshiping God. So let me leave you with this. We aren't just living a life bound 
by a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, in Christ, we live a life that has been set free from the bondage of sin. The good news of the gospel is Christ did what we couldn't. He took all of that bondage of sin when he died on the cross. And when he was resurrected, the burden of death for those in him was now gone. It's gone. That was the death of death for all those who called him Lord. That includes freedom to enjoy or abstain from things not specifically addressed in scripture without guilt. Remember what the London Baptist Confession says in chapter 21.3, our liberty in Christ isn't an excuse to sin or cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble or ruin our witness with our unbelieving neighbors. Friends, remember this, that no matter what you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Well, guys, it has been so great to discuss this uncomfortable topic with you, and I hope that you find it helpful in your walk with the Lord. Have a great, great week, and we'll catch you in the next one. 